You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking about modeling and data science in STEM education with Chad Dorsey. Chad grew up a science geek. He loved the lakes and meadows of summer camp. He studied physics in college and did doctoral work in geophysics at Oregon. He taught science in Maine and Vermont before taking on the leadership of the Concord Consortium. For more than a decade, Chad has been leading their effort to use tech to transform STEM education by empowering learners to ask and answer their own questions. On today's episode, Chad talks with Tom about the math education that all young people need. It looks like less calculating and more modeling, fewer small problems, and more data science. Let's listen in as Chad Dorsey talks about students being active agents of discovery. Chad Dorsey, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here. It's great to have you uh, live at the farm. <laughs> it's a wonderful place. I uh, enjoy looking outside. Chad, what made you a science geek? Boy, I think I was a science geek from, if not the very beginning, very close to it. My father was a science teacher. Um, my mother was also an elementary school teacher. And I grew up spending every summer of my life uh, until age 13 uh, at the Audubon camp in Wisconsin on an 800-acre um, plot that had a, a chain of lakes, uh, a, for a woods um, meadow. I lived in a log cabin from the 1800s. Um, so everywhere we went, people were talking about nature and science and thinking about it, and it just seemed like the way that you did things. So I've, I've loved it from the beginning. Why? Uh, you went to college and studied physics. Why physics? It was interesting, actually, because um, I wanted to study chemistry, Physics required four years, chemistry three, so I had to start with physics and um, kept on going with chemistry for a while and then um, dropped it off and, and stayed on with physics. Both of them were interesting. I, I'm fascinated by how the world works and um, physics is about as close to that as you get, so I was, I was in and hooked. How'd you get to Oregon? You did a master's at Oregon? Did a master's at University of Oregon, um, and actually I finished my doctoral um, work, uh, but um, sort of took the knowledge and ran before I finished the, the doctorate degree because I, I got interested in teaching, uh, which I'd been interested in all my life, um, but ended up in Oregon um, because I was looking for someplace different. They had a great um, physics department that was available, and I hadn't been out to the Northwest, um, and sort of one thing led to another, and I ended up in Oregon. Um, why geophysics? What What drew you... The, the advisor that I ended up with um, was one who studied volcanoes, but actually studied it um, in the lab in fascinating ways. He studied the way bubbles form. So I got interested in, in geophysics in undergrad um, because of uh, some research that I had done on glaciers and, um, and the like, dragged a radar sled across glaciers to map the, under, the underbed and got to use lots of technology in the early days of satellites. Um, and then in graduate school, got interested in the kinds of physical experiments people were doing. So we poured um, five-gallon buckets of corn syrup into giant glass containers and heated them from the bottom and watched the convection happening. Um, and it was about as fun as you could get um, in, a, in a physical lab. Uh, I, I went to Colorado School of Mines 40 years ago to ah. be an Arctic and glaciological scientist. I had no idea. That's wonderful. Then I... Uh, I found out I was susceptible to frostbite, and my wife told me she was not going to live on a glacier. So. Yes, there there are those sides of things. 
I got interested in, in the geology side because um, the, all these fun people were doing things outside, and I said, "Hey, science can be like that. That's right. great." Um, you, when you decided to teach, you moved to the other side of the country. How did you get a job in Vermont teaching? So I was actually teaching in Maine. Um, I flew out to Maine and interviewed for a couple of jobs. Got the got um, a couple offers, and we drove cross country from Oregon to Maine um, oh. with our car on the back of a rider truck. Um, went a wing, wing in a prayer, just interested in seeing another part of the country. My wife, um, or what was to be, do we come up? Come, my wife. Um, my soon to be fiance was uh, had a master's in journalism. I had a master's in teaching. Um, you could pretty much put your finger down on a map, and we essentially did, um, and ended up in Maine, looking for birds on the other side of the country. I'm I'm a birder as well. So, so about eleven years ago, you had a chance to take take over the leadership of the Concord Consortium. What what interested you about that role? So I always say that I'm a, a physicist by training, an educator by vocation, and a geek by nature. And um, when I was working. Before um, the Concord Consortium at the Maine Mathematics and Science Alliance doing professional development and technology-based assessment work, uh, I discovered the work that Concord was doing and instantly you know, recognized as sort of kindred spirits in the kind of um, modeling and simulation and um, the work that I had been doing in physics graduate school but applied for learning. And the kinds of things that I wanted to do when I was um, what I was teaching, but wasn't quite available. So when the the job became available, I jumped at it, and um, you know, sort of had to be pinched and and coaxed in for a minute to when I realized it was the, the CEO job. But it's really the kind of thing that I've always wanted. Um, what's the origin story of Concord? So it's a fascinating um, story in in that the Concord Consortium isn't really a consortium per se. It was a group of organizations that Bob Tinker um, sat down with at a coffee clutch in Concord, Massachusetts, when he decided he wanted to move on from um, Turk, uh, another nonprofit he had essentially grown from very small to 100 some people. He looked around and realized it wasn't a startup anymore and wanted to do something new. And the group around the coffee table all had lots of different ideas. Bob was the one who who could get grants, and mm-hmm. um, he got he got an NSF grant right away, and um, NS, Concord started from there, and so the consortium really never came to be except for the group of people that was the um, the group that led led by Bob, um, but he was always interested from the beginning, um, even before founding the Concord Consortium, you know, decades before, in how technology could really changed the way science, um, math, and engineering were taught and um, bring something fundamentally new to the table. And he was doing it back in the day when technology barely was, when there was this thing called an analog digital converter and sensors were being used in industry. He was proselytizing about how you could change the way students did the labs that they were doing in a day and do them in minutes. Um, And that whole sense came across from the beginning, um, people started to play around and um, connect different things to different um, different computers and realized that there was a lot to be had in this kind of learning uh, fostered by technology. Um, that same spirit, I think, has been there all along. In a lot of ways, um, we've been doing the same thing with new technologies and old technologies all the way through. Um, now it's just much more possible in um, many more places than it was back then. 
How, how do you think about the mission of Concord these days? So we think a lot about really what it means to open up learning. Um, we are all focused on STEM education, focused on what technology can do to transform STEM education. Um, and the core, however, we're really about uh, empowering learners to realize that they can learn. We did some thinking about this a while back and recognized that in lots of ways, STEM education is a vehicle um, for the kind of learning that we all love to do. And really what's powerful about learning science and math and engineering is that when you learn how to ask and answer your own questions, you realize that you can ask and answer your own questions. And it doesn't matter if it's in science or something else you have opened a whole world for yourself. So we do that through science because we love it. Um, but really our goal is to create people who are critical thinkers, problem solvers, and realize that they can, you know, they can see something in the world that they don't know about and learn about it. Let's take a quick spin through your focus areas. Um, first, to first topic is tools for inquiry. You were just talking about probes and sensors you really give kids um, kind of a hands-on introduction to the Internet of Things. Very much so, yeah. Um, and really, that, that I think is part of the spirit of what we're about, which is by no means technology for technology's sake. Even though we're all about technology, we're the first ones to say, take a mass in a spring and you know, look at what's going on. Take a hand lens, go out in the field. But when there's a, something that you can't easily do with, um, you know, with those then technology really comes to the fore. And technology is can inherently be a, an incredible tool for inquiry, helping students ask questions of the world in ways that um, give them detailed answers that they couldn't get with their own senses. Um, so probes and sensors are one example of that. Yeah, I, I mean, probes and sensors seems innocuous, right? But if it strikes me that... Uh, some of the most valuable things we can do for young people are help them ask good questions mm -hmm. and then think about the data set behind those questions, mm -hmm. right? The how might we question mm -hmm. about how could we collect data on something? Who else has data on that? How could we combine those, um, clean them, interrogate them to answer questions or at least draw inference about questions that, that we care about? And introductions to probes and sensors really it's probably the first time that young people will begin thinking that way about how they could collect data about something they care about, right? Right. I think it it closes the loop between um, I wonder and wait a minute, or I wonder and aha, um, in time in a way that's particularly important. You know, we have research to show that you know that feedback loop. You know, if it's tightened. Um, keep students engaged and able to recognize that their questions do have answers and that it's more complicated than that too. A lot of what we do is um, try to almost um, make science as complex as the, the real um, endeavor of science in some ways as, as we do try to simplify it so that students are encouraged to mess around with equipment, to mess around with the world and realize that there's complexity in measuring the world itself, um, but that they can find answers to those questions, you know, quickly and easily sometimes, and sometimes they need to take a long time and do it. Right. Um, STEM models. You you have um, a molecular workbench is a is a great collection of 
Simulations? Yes. Why are those important? So they're a good example of that same philosophy of bringing the world to students through technology um, in a way that technology is really necessary in that um, you can do lots of labs, but you can't, um, you can't do a lab with, mo- with, with molecules. Um, uh, you can't do inquiry about genetics in, right. on your own in 25 minutes in the classroom, but those things are really essential. So a model or simulation like the, like the workbench takes research grade um, uh, algorithms about molecular motion and puts a pedagogical layer on the front and makes it accessible for students, well, you know, down to elementary school and even below, we work with primary students with the kinds of models and simulations there to, to give them a hands-on sense of the phenomena and the ability to explore those phenomena um, in ways that they couldn't even begin to reach without technology. I'm a big fan of uh, the FET Sims from CU. How would so you say we, yours are, how are they different then? So are they complementary I think that definitely we're all in the same zone and, we, and Kathy and the FET group are very close colleagues of ours. Um, I think one of the real distinctions is that because kind of because we're geeks, we focus on building um, what we call engines for simulation that can be um, created and used in multiple purposes. So the molecular workbench is really molecules um, that can be that behave according to the laws of nature and that can be put into lots of different situations. So we can create um, dozens, hundreds of different simulations from any one engine, and we have them across the spectrum from molecules to genetics to ecosystems to you know heat transfer to you name it um, again all with the core science at the bottom so that the results are authentic the genes are real in our genetic simulations so students can do true inquiry um, all the way across the board with them and we can create multiple different scenarios from a 10-minute example to a two-week um, exploration um, with the same sorts of engines repurposed and speaking of genetics you've got a you have a fun engine that explores the heredity and genetics by breeding virtual dragons. Yes, that's been a, a staple for many, many years. A decade before I got to Concord, breeding dragons was part of the part of the whole genetics staple, and and it's proved to continue to be engaging for kids. Um, and again, we take the same spin. Um, the genes are real. The, the the stories are made up, but the genes are real, as we say. The the horns gene for the dragons is the same gene in literal DNA in our program that gives cattle their horns. The, um, the wings are the ones that give fruit flies their wings. So you can actually take those genes and start to use them in biology class mm. in other ways as well. That's cool. Uh, you have a set of modeling tools. Um, why, why is it important for secondary students to dive into modeling? It's really essential. Um, the, the whole notion of being able to understand not just how the world works, but how to understand and pull out the rules that underlie what's happening in the world and then use those rules for prediction is really at the core of everything we're doing, whether it's science, whether it's math, whether it's finance, you name it. Giving students that ability is key. It's very complex and very very difficult to do. I did it when I was a teacher in the classroom um, and it opened up my eyes to the ways that students could learn in whole new ways. Um, but it's very you know, complicated to do with topics that aren't so cut and dried that they're almost too sim- oversimplified. So the tools that we have enable students to start with a really low threshold 
create almost basic diagrams with arrows and turn those into um, models that they can run and they can even see data, but without necessarily needing the numbers. So it really brings the conceptual sense of modeling in a full loop around for students in ways that are really important. And especially with the next generation science standards, people are recognizing the critical role that modeling plays in science instruction in particular. I've been writing about complexity lately, and it it strikes me that high school, the, the first affect is boredom. Mm-hmm. The second affect is simplicity, that that we've we've turned all the world's subjects into these right and wrong answers on worksheets. And mm, right. um, the, I guess the question I think a lot about is how do we introduce complexity to young people to help them understand that uh, the world has become very, very complex, and it's the way these complex systems interact in, with each other and um, w- with themselves. Is uh, It's grown very complicated, and so how to introduce that topic, and I think modeling is, uh, is a really important way to do that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And the interesting thing is that the complexity often comes out of simplicity, so it, it can be quite accessible in that building up a complex system um, means building up a number of simple rules that tend to have feedback loops and different kinds of attributes. And out of it comes a surprise, an emergent phenomenon, something you didn't expect. Right. And then you've got somebody hooked because they right. didn't see that coming. And in fact, the key is that they didn't see it coming because we don't see it coming in complex systems. Um, it's always something emergent and it's the rules are never complicated. It's just the, the effects. You have a data platform, um, CODAP, a common online data analysis platform. What do students use that for? So we've been thinking a lot in the last, especially five years, about the importance of getting students to engage with and learn about um, data in ways that are exploratory, rich, and suit the world that they're going to be moving into. I would say today's fourth grader is tomorrow's data scientist. And when you ask what we're doing for her, the answer is almost nothing. Um, The um, CODAP is an example of a tool that's building on a rich background of research. Like all of our work, we build our work on research. We do um, research on the work that we do. Most of our work is supported by NSF um, grants. We um, are, we, CODAP is a way to, within the course of 30 seconds, take a data set, generate graphs and questions and see connections across the data set because of the way that that the tool is created um, that can open up whole new um, realms of of questions, whole new um, sets of understanding in ways that other tools simply can't do. Um, It does that because it's built on really the foundation of about 20 years of um, research and work in um, two packages, Fathom and Tinkerplots, which were the sort of primary or prime stats education um, tools and are still really well known. People have computers they're just keeping them alive on because they're shrink-wrapped software. Um, And CODAP is the web-based successor of those tools. Um, Free, open source, available for anybody. Um, Broadly, becoming much more broadly used now because you simply can't easily ask and answer questions of data in most other tools. You try to asking extra questions of data in Excel or Google Spreadsheets. In 30 minutes, maybe you get a graph, but you can't see connections. You can't understand 
the ways that things, um, one thing leads to another. And most importantly, you don't see the structure and the sort of key aspects of what data is about. So it's designed for all of those things. You have a cool uh, tool that models the uh, tectonic plates. Yes. What's that called? So um, that's part of our geode project that okay. Amy Pallant has been doing a marvelous um, job with building up a suite of tools that really change the game for the way that people think about learning earth science. Earth science is this fascinating um, thing, which again, I know we both um, had a background in thinking about geology, uh, but learning geology and earth science has been something that is sort of the antithesis of a hands-on science. Um, it's maybe you're looking at something out in the field, but you're not seeing anything as dynamic or changing. And most of the experiments people do tend to lead more to misconceptions than they do anything. Um, so what Amy's done with these tools like Geode is provide um, a system-centered view that is interactive and um, true to the science, again, that lets you see the phenomena for what they really are and ask questions and posit your own ideas. So with Geode, you can the Tectonic Explorer, you can paint continents onto a globe. You can turn on the forces and watch them smash together. Um, and then you can turn it around and you can see that what happens with the other side of the plate, when one mm -hmm. side's smashing together, the other side has to be stretching apart because the Earth is a sphere. No other curriculum, no other tools force you to have that realization and help you understand Earth as a system. And Amy's on a, on a mission to help Earth science you know, transform around this idea that it can be a dynamic, experiment-driven um, learning process. You have some cool data science tools, um, including a game project. Yeah, so we've been thinking a lot of different ways about how students can engage with um, the kind of core of what it is to understand the rudiments of data science. And we've got a set of games for middle school that are more based on statistics and probability and um, a set that's more high school based that really is engaging with the ideas underlying data science. They use CODAP as their engine um, and engage students with, um, sometimes it's uh, trying to understand um, the data behind the BART transport system in the San Francisco, but trying to solve a mystery. It might be trying to use um, data to, um, to create a strategy that you can automatically run to win a game against Dr. Markov, um, who's trying to steal your dog. And um, in both cases, it's requiring you to use data as a way to win the game. So you can't win the game without understanding the data and then applying your understanding um, as a strategy in the game. You have a couple of cool um, engineering design Yep. Software applications? And we've been thinking a lot about engineering and what that means for um, for students and how technology can help. Um, one of the ways that we've been doing that is through some marvelous extensive work around solar energy and building design through something called Energy 3D that Charles C. has developed over right. many years. Um, within five minutes, students can design a house, um, put windows in, put a solar panel on, and orient it in the proper way um, for their particular latitude and then see what would happen if they changed the latitude. Um, they can build whole cities within this and understand the dynamics of sort of solar design um, in ways that just aren't possible otherwise. 
I would love to dive into math instruction. We've talked a lot about active science yeah. learning. Um, you, you've been thinking hard about um, STEM education now for more than 10 years. Right. Um, how does math fit in? Uh, what should we be doing more of and less of? Right. So I think there are kind of two frames. I've talked a little about data and I can talk more about that. And that's that's something I think is critical, obviously. Uh, another aspect, I think, has to do with the experience students have in mathematics class, um, which is uh, most of the time dry, uninspired and um, and not related to the real world um, or frankly, related to what they're going to do. That, the answer to that question, when am I going to use this? Unfortunately, most of the time is you're not because we're not teaching you the, the ways and the things that you will use. Right. So um, some of the projects that we have um, working right now in math instruction are deliberately working with um, research-based curricula that are um, you know, student-oriented, um, group-based, and problem-based, and um, inherently collaborative. So that, um, and they are asking the question, what does it mean? What does it really mean to learn as a group of learners? So, for example, we're developing um, a platform where, in your learning, um, you know, as you're just solving a problem in your group, you're seeing all four screens and of all the other students in your group, and you can borrow things from their screen and cut and paste them into yours and sort of develop a group solution. And the teacher can watch the whole thing on a, a true dashboard, not just a dashboard with some graphs and charts, but to see actually what's happening so that it becomes a, a strong tool for the teacher who is facilitating this knowledge building classroom and orchestrating the conversation that actively that will happen at the end of class as students are participating in sort of constructivist um, you know, kinds of understanding. So those kinds of tools we think are really critical because there aren't enough technology tools that really are built for an inherently collaborative classroom where a teacher is truly a guide and where students are journeying together to uncover the kinds of knowledge that they, that they understand. Mathematics should look like that. Most of the time it doesn't. Yeah, I, I did an interview this morning on this topic, and it's interesting to think about the period in history that we're in. We, we've spent a couple hundred years teaching math as a solitary sort of theoretical mm -hmm. um, plug and crank of memorize the formula and know when to apply it. Exactly. And almost always done individually. What you just described was one where students are thinking hard about what problem should we solve. Mm -hmm. They're working on it uh, collaboratively. Instead of preparing for a summative assessment at the end of the year, there's dynamic feedback happening in real time, exactly visible both to the student and to the and to the instructor, that's a very different picture of of it, math learning. It really is, and it's marvelous to see it in action. I've been in these classrooms, and um, you know the teachers and kids are alive with ideas, and they in this curriculum, which is a curriculum that's been around for thirty years, actually, it's a marvelous um, middle school math curriculum. Um, students really do learn a different way of thinking about knowledge, you know, by the time they're through sixth grade and into the sort of seventh grade year that we've been piloting in, 
They don't think about you know working, taking somebody else's results as cheating. They know that they are all building knowledge together. They know that they won't know the answer, and they know they might not know it for a while. And they know that the teacher might call it um, you know Xavier's uh, process instead of the distributed property because that's a better way of learning. Eventually, they'll learn the name for it, but they don't care. So it's a really a very rich way of learning about things, and much more true to the way that the workforce is. You know, collaborative. You don't know the answers. Um, we know that we're just going to figure them out. So in America, we organize math around um, after after we finish finish arithmetic, we do um, pre-algebra and then algebra one and then geometry and then algebra two. And that whole sequence, that sort of pathway to calculus is really focused on memorizing a set of rules and formulas and knowing when and how to apply them. Mm-hmm. That strikes me that that construct is really outdated. It doesn't have much to do with what I did as an engineer or as a finance professional uh, or as an investor. Um, Why do we keep organizing math that way? And is there a better way to organize a secondary math sequence? That's a great question. And it's unfortunate that we propagate so many things in education for so many years. Um, we've, We've all seen this happen. So I think the biggest word in that um, in that train that you described is the word calculus, which has been king throughout. And you know, that started in the Sputnik era. Started when you know rocket science was rocket science, and the thing that we we needed to train people for. Um, I took calculus. You know, I studied physics. Yeah. I used it. I mean, but I, the did, large I did too. And I, people, I love calc and I love Diffie right. Q. But the large majority of people but, don't need, even right. professionals who are in highly math intensive um, right. situations, don't use calculus on a regular basis. Um, if you ask how many people use data on a regular basis, the answer is much, Every much day, higher. All day. Every day, yeah. all day, 70, right. 80%. And, you know, the data worker, it's not just a data scientist, it's the data worker, and that's um, almost everybody. So, um, so we're, we are preparing students for. A world from the 1950s um, when we are already in a world of the, the data age that has come and you know far upon us. So it's really critical that we think differently about the way that we learn and apply mathematics. Um, and I would say that's both rethinking the math pathways and rethinking where data lives within the curriculum itself. So on the math pathway piece, there are some who are thinking differently about the ways that in Washington State here is one, Oregon is another, there are some other places, but you know, not too many. Um, thinking about the fact that calculus doesn't need to be the top and there are other ways to move through this pathway and um, that there are possibilities that are better suited for students' particular proclivities themselves. So students may have interests, imagine that, in what they want to do. And there may be certain math you know, pathways that are better suited for that, um, that there are ways that students who want to study STEM careers in particular can be guided into you know, calculus, but maybe not everybody. Um, I think that those are critical to think about. I think it's critical to think about that in a way that keeps those level so that there's not the calculus pathway and then the alternate pathways that are lesser, um, because I think that there's a real danger yeah. in that. And, and some people have... There's really well-intentioned work that's been done in the, in this multiple pathways and where they say there's a STEM pathway and an other pathway. My argument is 
there's some value to that, but even the STEM professionals need yes. math modeling. They need yes. computational thinking. Yes. They need less calculation uh, and they need more data science. So mm-hmm. let's Entirely. not think about right, preserving I, the old I, model. I agree with you as well, right. exactly, which is to say that that you know, whether it's, I think it's a good debate whether we even need calculus before college. I think a lot of colleges will tell you you probably don't even. But I think it's not a debate, as far as I'm concerned, whether you need to understand math modeling, whether you need to understand sort of math that is learned in a way that helps you understand how to right. apply it, helps you understand how to work together with other people. That is the antithesis of the worksheets and um, problems that right. we get in the back, you know, solving the back of the book. Let's, let's be clear. I think we're not, we're not attacking no. um, algebra. Algebraic reasoning is the, the fundamental principle the of math modeling. Of modeling. By all in means. math modeling, you're doing multivariable problem solving and you're doing sensitivity analysis to understand yep. how the variables interact mm-hmm. with each other. So... Yes, but we're, we're asking the question, how can you look at that problem with the two trains coming to one another and think about it in a way that helps you see it as a math modeling problem, not as something you're plugging and chugging? You need to use algebra because those are the rules of the model that you're creating, but right. you need to understand them as the model you're creating because it's not just because math modeling is important, because that helps you generalize and understand what you're actually doing um, most of the time when you're learning to solve that problem, you're learning you know, an algorithm or a process that you don't understand the basis of anyway. So bringing out the math modeling is core in all of that. I completely agree. So it, if we step back and think about what high school could look like, um, if you want to start a yeah. couple of grades earlier and talk about secondary school, um, what would STEM education look like? Describe the sort of experiences and sequences that young people should benefit from. Right. I think I think it's the I think it's the experiences that are most important. Um, you know, the sequences. There there are certain things that need to come before others. There are things that we know about learning progressions, um, but most important is um, a student's experience of. Um, science learning of mathematics learning uh, should be one of where they recognize that they are active agents in the discovery of knowledge from an early enough age that they realize that that's the way school works and that they haven't it hasn't been beaten out of them or learned out of them from you know so that by the time they get to high school it's you know it's complicated to even get them to think as sort of independent learners um, learning lo- learning like that looks you know looks like project-based learning and problem-based learning most of the time. Um, it looks like um, you know, applying these kinds of, of ideas we've been talking about as active tools. So it looks like students recognizing there's a problem to be solved, knowing there is a tool to be reached for and reaching and being fluent enough to reach for that tool, whether it's a data tool, a modeling tool, a tool of sort of understanding and discourse, um, a tool of a collaboration. Some of those might be technology tools. Some of those might be protocols or just understandings of how they work together. But fluent in the ability to recognize that knowledge is uncovered, that we work together to uncover it, and that um, if there's a problem there, there's a solution to be had and I can find it. And that, I think, is the the thing that is often most lost in education right now is that we're waiting for the... It's, when I know that you know, 
the answer, then we're both waiting for that. And the magic time in learning happens very, very rarely, but it does sometimes in, you know, we've all experienced it, say, in the science lab or something. When a teacher comes over and you say, what about this? And you see their brow furrow and they lean in and you realize in that magic moment that neither of you know the answer. Mm. And all of a sudden you realize that your idea is as valid as that teacher's idea. And finding a way to make that happen all the time is really what's key. That it's not, I'm just trying to find the answer that's in your head. It's we're working together because the answers are out there to be found. That's, that's the key. It's a change for teachers to, yeah. to be able to walk into that moment and say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a new sense of uh, vulnerability to bring to the classroom. Yes, it definitely is. And in professional development work that I've done, I've seen how complicated that can be. And I've also seen both in professional development work and in my own work as a teacher with colleagues, how how it's probably the most purely invigorating thing a teacher can experience as well. When a teacher realizes that the process he or she has been going through for maybe years or decades um, has been creating students who don't actually know the things that they are parroting back and realizes that there is a way to get them to that. I've seen teachers who were going to retire continue on for 10 more years because they said, oh, I've never known it could be like this. Let's let's wrap up with some uh, some concluding thoughts on how to how to help teachers be successful in this new environment in this new approach. Mm-hmm. So, w- w- what are the on ramps to help them begin to lead these sorts of classrooms? That's a great question. It's one that we've been asking ourselves as well. Um, I think the answer is in finding ways for students to have agency, um, whether they be small or medium or large, and usually they're small at the beginning, and realizing that that agency is based in content, that students can ask and answer their own questions about the kind of content that they're learning, and that you can take the labs that you might have been doing in science class and turn them into inquiry-centered labs that evoke the practices sometimes just by flipping them on their head and um, that it's okay and that it's okay not to know the answer. It's okay for students to be confused and it's okay to um, let them sit in that for a while. Sometimes it's okay for things to be messy. Data can be messy. Um, The beginning of a lab doesn't necessarily need to be the setup instructions. It might be figure out how we might measure this and that providing a little bit more of that leash in structured ways is ultimately a very satisfying um, on-ramp for teachers. We have found that um, for really big changes in instruction that um, school visits or classroom visits can be really Mm -hmm. powerful. It's immersive learning for teachers. Are there things like that? Do you recommend school visits or classroom visits or can videos be I, I, yes, helpful? Yes, I think, I think school visits and classroom visits are very powerful. And I've seen that back in you know the days when I was a teacher and looking at school reform and, and changing minds about the way that school could be. Um, I think videos can be a good proxy for that. Um, it's, you know, they have to be, it's hard to make good videos of that, but they can be very powerful when they are. Um, I also think that student work 
um, can be extremely powerful, especially student work that uncovers misconceptions students may have long held that haven't necessarily been addressed in the way that a teacher might have thought. Um, when I was working in the May Math and Science Alliance, some of the most powerful things I saw were um, individual question probes that you could give to teachers that deliberately were designed to tease out students' misconceptions. And we just give them to people ahead of time and say, give this to your students and bring the work into the, the session. And they would come in already armed with, what? wait a minute, we, we've got to talk about this because they looked at the results and said, we just taught that last week. And the discussions that happened among those teachers were more engaged, were richer, were more life-changing than I've seen in almost any other opportunities because teachers realized that there was something different that they could do to get students to learn differently. And it came from their actual students and their actual work. And that conversations around student work are always powerful. Are you optimistic? Do you, do you see uptake of the, the tools that Concord is sharing? Yes. It's, it's very exciting to be in a time when this work can come to fruition. I've been saying a lot lately that in some ways I've been realizing recently um, all the work that we've been doing for 25 years was really essentially theoretical for the major almost all that time. It's not as if it was not being used. We had teachers using it. But never really be used at scale because the technology wasn't there, the realizations weren't there, people's awareness wasn't there. Um, that's all really changed in the last three or four years. Right. And now this is truly possible. And now we're starting to say, okay, let's let's talk about this stuff we've been doing for the last 25 years because it's all in the same vein. Um, and now we can see it happening you know, at large in schools around the nation, in um, countries around the world, in ways that are really starting to take um, take root. And because at the heart of it, this essence of the world itself, those phenomena don't change, they're still there. Um, and the idea of putting students in the driver's seat is all sort of at the core. When it propagates, it propagates in ways that are rich and learner-centered and very powerful all the time. And that's really heartening. It feels like it's um, kind of a perfect storm for Concord. Schools are adopting broader aims. Um, your tools and other tools are getting better and more accessible. Uh, there's a lot of movement towards student-centered learning, more project-based learning, the shift to formative that that we talked about, all of that feels like it's creating a big opening for what you've been focusing on for 20 years. It, it really is. Yeah. One of our, our advisors said the world's coming in a conquered direction. And I think that's yeah. really true. And and we're seeing teachers, I think, more open to this than they ever have been, um, especially with the next generation science standards. The, the way that that has come about has really helped people see their work in a different light. And for the first time, I think, ever for me in education reform, I'm seeing teachers not pushing back, but rolling up their sleeves and saying, yeah, that makes sense. You know, help me. How do, how do I do it? And um, that's just incredibly exciting. Yeah. Chad Dorsey, thanks for joining us on the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. A big thanks to Chad for joining us on today's episode. We appreciate the Concord Consortium's work to bring STEM education alive for more students. For more on intelligent uses of tech in math education, check out episode 230 with Jesse Woolley-Wilson of Dreambox Learning. We've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog. 
And before you go, be sure to rate and review the show so more people can find us. That's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.